0: Coming up on Tech Nation, we learn why we should develop the skill of rapid rapport, as well as sizing up psychological safety in our work environment. Dr. Gabriella Kellerman joins me to talk about Tomorrow Mind, thriving at work with resilience, creativity, and connection. Now and in an uncertain future. Then, what is AI doing in biotech? We learn one company's approach to drug discovery. Yes, you can understand it. It's not a black box. And humans just can't do the same thing. BioXL already has one approved drug and is working on more. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: In 2012, I interviewed National Medal of Technology winner Ray Kurzweil about his book, How to Create a Mind The Secret of Human Thought Revealed. In it, he writes The story of human intelligence starts with a universe that is capable of encoding information. We have a world based on information and he's not talking about the digital kind.
2: There's a lot of debate as to how we ended up in the universe that can encode information. Uh, Some people use the anthropic principle that if it wasn't the case, we wouldn't be here and wouldn't be talking about it. But that allowed evolution, and evolution has evolved more and more complex creatures that eventually evolved a nervous system, and those nervous systems ultimately evolved a neocortex, which is capable of thinking in hierarchies to reflect the natural hierarchy of the world. This first emerged in mammals. It was the size of a postage stamp and as thin as a postage stamp and little rodents. Uh, Not very noticeable, but it allowed these animals to actually learn new skills that were complicated and hierarchical uh, without having to go through thousands of years of biological evolution to change their behavior. But then, 65 million years ago, there was this cataclysmic event called the Cretaceous extinction event. And we can see Archaeological evidence of that everywhere in the world, something happened very dramatic to change the environment very quickly and uh, animals non mammalian species that did not have a neocortex died out, many of them did uh, and that's when mammals took over their this ecological niche and to anthropomorphize biological evolution said, "Hey, this neocortex is pretty useful, and they start growing it uh, as mammals got more complex and by primates. It was no longer flat. It was very convoluted. If you you know know what the brain of a primate looks like, it has many ridges and convolutions to increase its surface area. It's still a very thin structure. If you were to stretch out a human neocortex, it'd be about the size of size of a table napkin and just as thin. But because of its all of these curvatures and convolutions, it's about eighty percent of the brain, and it's where we do our thinking and we think in in hierarchies. And the big innovation in in Homo sapiens is we have this big forehead. We could squeeze in more neocortex, and that was the enabling factor to that permitted the development of language. Art and science and music, uh no other invention, technology, no other species does that. Other primates began to do a little bit of it, they have some primitive language and tool making skills, but only humans can really build this this fantastic hierarchy. And now we're actually using that scientific ability to understand the best example of human intelligence, which is the human brain. And it's really only in the last couple of years that we can see inside a human brain with enough precision to see what's going on, and we can see our brain create our thoughts, we can see our thoughts create our brain. That's key to how the neocortex works. The connections between these different pattern recognition modules, which is part of my thesis, uh, that represents the hierarchy of our concepts, uh, we create ourselves from the moment we're born and even before that, we're laying down these, this conceptual hierarchy from very primitive recognitions like the crossbar in a capital A or the edge of an object up to things like, she's pretty, or, that was ironic. They're actually done by the same recognizers except that those high-level recognizers exist at the top of this conceptual hierarchy. And the hierarchy is created by actual wiring, of actual dendrites and, and axons between these different modules. Uh, I estimated we have about 300 million pan recognizers. They each have about 100 neurons. So the basic unit is not a neuron. It's a, it's a module of about 100 neurons that can recognize a pattern and that can build these connections to other modules.
0: You've been listening to a 2012 Technation interview with Ray Kurzweil, the author of How to Create a Mind the secret of human thought revealed. Today, Ray Kurzweil is the chief futurist at Google. I'm Moira again This is 5 Minutes.
1: 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, what science tells us about humans and our changing workplace. Ever hear of assembly line decline? Dr. Gabriella Kellerman gets us prepared with her book, Tomorrow Mind. Then in biotech... Dr. Vimal Mehta, the CEO of BioXL Therapeutics. Their AI reads all, is it 50 million scientific articles available? And it scans them for remote yet interconnected information leading to good drug candidates. Their first for agitation and bipolar 1 and 2 and schizophrenia is already approved.
2: Technation is underwritten in part by MindK., a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web
0: at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Kellerman. Well, Dr. Kellerman, welcome to Tech Nation. Oh, thanks so much. Great to be here with you. Now, since again and again I keep encountering that your mindset is key to many things in your life, the title of your book got my attention right away. Tomorrow Mind what is tomorrow mind
3: So tomorrow mind is the set of psychological skills that we need to thrive in this very unusual world of work that we all find ourselves in and we outline in the book five different components to it summarized by the acronym prism so prospection resilience innovation social support and mattering Well, we'll be getting
0: down into uh, many of those. But I kept thinking to myself, we spend the great bulk of our lives working. And so many of us don't have an insight into our attitudes toward work or how it affects our lives. Many of these attitudes we just absorbed from our families. We haven't been thinking about it. But very interesting here. Not only are you reporting on other people's science, you and your co-author, Professor Seligman, teamed up and did your own science. What did you two do?
3: So the research involves um, original uh, data collection through BetterUp Labs, which is the research arm of BetterUp that um, the CEO of BetterUp, Alexi, asked me to start in 2017, um, and we've partnered with academic institutions around the world to do the research. We've also done a fair amount of the research in-house. We're looking at data around uh, how what are employees focused on in terms of their development and their growth? What are the challenges that they're navigating? What is the broader context of organizational performance and culture that this is happening within? And then there are also specific experimental programs in those areas where the science of interventions is a lot thinner. For example, creativity, Uh, we have done intervention experiments to look at what helps people become more creative, because there's actually very little of that kind of science out there for creativity in particular, whereas there's more of it, fortunately, in areas like resilience.
0: Now, how do you how do you test that? Do you interview people one-on-one? Do they take questionnaires? I mean, it's not clear to me how you would do that.
3: Um, All of the above. So it's, this is uh, summarizing a huge body of research that includes smaller intervention studies where we would recruit full-time working professionals, put them in experimental conditions and observe their behavior you know, as part of a research program, some of the data we've been collecting as part of the coaching that we do with BetterUp. So BetterUp has hundreds of thousands of people going through coaching and um, some of that data in an anonymized aggregated uh, format is available to researchers to really understand what's happening at work and where we need help. There's survey-based research. There's also research where, you know, our, our collaborators might be working with a particular Data set or study population. And so we would explore all of those opportunities and figure out the best way to answer the question of interest.
0: Now, with respect to resilience, and remember, each of the things we'll be talking about here can be developed. So it's not like a, oh, that leaves me out. Nope. Correct. You can develop these things. Uh, yeah, you could develop this. And um, so it's emotional regulation, self efficacy, cognitive agility optimism, and self-compassion. Now, let's get there. Let's talk
3: about each of those. Sure. And this data came from looking at individual professionals across all industries. When they were able to achieve resilient outcomes in the face of challenge, what were the biggest drivers of that And uh, across thousands of people? And we came up with those five as the five biggest drivers. All of them can be developed We all have strengths within those five, and we all have areas of opportunity. And part of the project of developing greater resilience is understanding where am I already actually pretty strong? That's something I'm going to lean into. I'm going to consciously tap when I need it. And where are the areas where I can build up some skill? Because that's going to help me shore up my resilience for the long haul. So emotional regulation to start off, it's pretty much... Uh, The the fundamental skill set for all kinds of therapy and coaching, some people would say it's the essence of coaching, is helping us gain better awareness of our emotions, helping us distance our emotions from the actions that follow so that the behaviors we're putting out into the world are in keeping with a more centered, more holistic reflection of our, our values, the choices we would like to make rather than coming from a really reactive place. Any methods around kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, any of those schools of thought, they all come down to how do we distance ourselves from our emotions, understand what wisdom they have to offer, and then reappraise to decide what actions do we want to take now in light of a uh, a more centered evaluation of of the situation around us. Um the second one is self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is our confidence that we can do something uh, effectively, we can conquer a challenge. And interestingly, it is something that can be developed in a specific realm and then will generalize to other realms. So I might be able to develop a greater sense of mastery as a presenter at work and just seeing myself gradually build that skill and arrive at the goals that I set for myself will help me build confidence that I can take on other challenges and be successful. Being resilient, we need to go into these situations with a, a degree of self-belief that we can come out on the other side. Fortunately, self-efficacy is something that can be really well-developed. Great managers can help their teams develop this, um, and it's a core part of what coaches are there to help people do is Define small enough chunks of work that they'll be successful at each of those chunks and then build up that sense of mastery. Cognitive agility is the third, and that's our ability to alternate between opportunistic, high level scoping of the environment and very focused effort. So think of it as the switching back and forth between the forest and the trees. And when we are facing a great challenge, we need to be able to be opportunistic thinking about what are the things I should pay attention to here before I get locked into a response. Um, In particular, there's ways of getting locked into a negative response, which has to do with how we might catastrophize about an outcome and then kind of organize our life activities around a negative outcome versus taking the time to be open to all the possibilities before we choose that response. Self compassion is really about applying the toolbook of compassion that we have available to support others when they're going through something challenging and applying that to ourselves. And optimism is the last one, it has an extremely robust connection with resilience. Optimism is about how do you see a positive path forward even in the face of unescapably difficult situations. It's not just about the ability to maintain kind of an upbeat attitude. Optimism actually motivates us to keep trying and keep going and keep working. When we're pessimistic, we're less likely to keep trying. So it's really about the fuel for the work to be done. Well, I kept thinking about adapting to change, change we can't control,
0: we didn't ask for, was thrust upon us. We all felt this in the global pandemic. It wasn't that my job was in question or my organization was was uh, having to change. We all felt it across the board. What impresses me in the thinking here and in, in the background of what you're talking about is that when there are changes at work specifically affecting us, or just circumstantially, say the next department over or the replacement of a head of an organization, it affects us more than, well, maybe I'll be missing my income stream. It affects us very seriously.
3: So the change around us, it's constant, it's unpredictable. That environment is known to create a kind of tonic stress level, Um, you know, we are wired to respond to change and uncertainty in certain ways that are not especially healthy for us psychologically or emotionally. Um, And yet we are also incredibly resilient and adaptable beings. And so part of the challenge is accepting this broader landscape of change, internalizing it as a new normal in a way that lets us bring greater calm and poise to each individual change. The, The project is about all of the changes to come, not anyone in particular. And it's absolutely true that we are experiencing so much change. We're not even aware of how we're affected by many of the more peripheral changes around us. There's these sort of ripples, you know, billions of ripples of information and um, events that we're feeding into every day as members of a global community with 5 billion people online. Um, that's, it's too much for us to have conscious awareness of each of those pieces of information and impact.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Gabriella Kellerman with University of Pennsylvania psychology professor Martin Seligman. They've written Tomorrow Mind, thriving at work with resilience, creativity, and connection. Now, one thing you talk about that I hadn't seen in this one place is this concept or ability, whatever you want to call it, of rapid
3: rapport and what that does for you. Let's go there. So rapid rapport is the ability to quickly build trust across difference. We know that connection is an essential pillar of well-being in any model of well-being. We need that well-being more than ever today to help us get through this very tumultuous Era of work. And yet it's harder than ever to connect because we have a sense of time famine. So we feel like we never have enough time. We are distanced in space. So we are geographically distanced, increasingly so and we're all different you know we used to work in tribes of 50 or 100 people where we knew everyone we all were kind of from the same gene pool and now we're at work working with people who are effectively strangers they not only look different and sound different they work in different functions they are coming from different cultures all of these dimensions of difference we need to somehow navigate to get to the connection we need for our well-being on the business side of it Organizations need us to be connected to get collabori- effective collaboration, which is where innovation happens today in large corporations. They also need us to be able to connect quickly with our customers. It's not a world of customer satisfaction. It's not even a world of customer experience. It's customer delight is the place that we're at. And part of that goes back to this whole puzzle of we crave more connection. You know, We're, we're used to working with chatbots and automated tools for everything where we don't need a human. But when we do need a human, we have pretty high expectations as consumers. So the puzzle is, if you don't have a lot of time, you're separated in space, you're working with strangers, how do you overcome that to achieve the connection we need as individuals and professionals? Rapid Report is a set of tools that we've developed to help people overcome each of these barriers in order to get there.
0: Give us some examples. What do you do? We have to have rapid rapport or we great. wouldn't have a, uh, an interview here. Tell us about that.
3: That's a great point. So for each of the barriers, we give tools to overcome them. So I'll give you examples on the first barrier of time, this idea of time famine. We know that when we feel like we're in a hurry, we are less likely to connect to people. We're less likely to be kind to them. It can feed all kinds of antisocial behaviors. And so there's two ways to overcome that. The first is to use kind acts to shift us into a space of time abundance. So there's a whole body of work in particular, one lovely study by a trio of professors out of Harvard, Yale, and Wharton called Giving Time Gives Us Time. And what they looked at is for people who are constantly have a sense of I'm, I'm in a hurry. If they give you back time in your day and tell you to use it in one of four different ways, which of those is going to most help you. So the ways included things like doing nothing, doing something for yourself. And one of the ways was to help others. And when they looked at how all of these conditions changed people's sense of, do I have enough time in the day? When they use that extra time to help other people, it actually opened up for them a sense of, I have greater time in my day in general. So we can relieve the, the very problem, which is this time famine mindset, by doing the thing that we think we don't have time for, which is giving that time to others. When you do those kind acts and you feel that sense of time abundance, it's important to stop and notice it and let yourself lean into that sense of, oh everything's okay. I can get that done tomorrow. Like This connection feels very meaningful and wholesome to me, really to savor it and let that time abundance sink in. The second tool that we give in uh, conquering the barrier of time is there's a lot of psychoeducation to be done around how much time do we actually need to achieve connection with people. If you think about the profession where connection is most important and the professional is most challenged for time, it's probably medicine. Doctors, nurses, caregivers, the connection they need to form is actually really important to patient outcomes, but our system has them seeing 13, 14, 17 patients a day. Um, How are they supposed to do that? And so a lot of studies have looked at just how long does it take to achieve rapport between a patient and a doctor or a nurse or a healthcare professional. And they found that lots of studies have shown that increments of less than a minute are highly effective. And even increments of 10 seconds add up over time. So every increment of 10 seconds of kind words, reassuring words, Builds connection, lower patient anxiety, builds rapport, yields better patient outcomes. So the takeaway is that it doesn't have to be about some massive investment of time. It can be the ending 45 seconds of your meeting that you consciously devote to gratitude, to recognition of the other, to kind words about someone's family or life circumstance. Those things really matter and we don't need to set the bar artificially high, given we have such great data around smaller increments of time.
0: Now, I have to laugh when I read this, not at it, but about it, because people say, oh, well, it's a job, it's work. What do you expect? You know, but the truth is, is that you're saying, look, at this job has to be meaningful to you for you to really be happy, if you will. And frankly... You know, when you're interviewing for the job, nobody is saying to you, and do you think this job will be meaningful to you? And if you're in a job and you're like, how am I supposed to make this meaningful to me? Let's talk about the importance of meaningful and what can be meaningful in a number of circumstances.
3: Yeah, a couple of pieces of it that are worth breaking down. I think most fundamentally, there is the concept of mattering which we think of as kind of a subset of meaning. It's difficult sometimes to answer the question, is my work meaningful? It's a little easier to answer the question, does my work matter? And we do feel like everyone should believe and know that their work matters. Otherwise, it's really demotivating. The company probably doesn't need them to do it anyway, right? We're, We're talking about people who are employed to produce value in some fashion or another, Um, They should understand that. Their company should help them understand that, in particular, their managers. A lack of mattering is a symptom of poor psychological well-being. If we don't believe that we matter, we're not going to be in a good place either at work or at home. Now, Whether we find work meaningful is a slightly different question, and we do believe that in this day and age, more and more people expect to find meaning from their work, and we don't say that as a normative statement, more as a descriptive statement. We do know that when we find our work meaningful, when we feel that it's connected to a larger sense of purpose, we give more discretionary effort we are more innovative, we're more likely to stay at our employer. And so it's in our employer's interest to attract people, retain people who feel their work is meaningful, and to look for ways to help people increase with that sense of purpose. Because again, it will get to better organizational outcomes.
0: Now, I found you writing about assembly line decline, pretty fascinating. I mean, much of our American economy was built on this massification of production. You know, be on the assembly line and we can build products cheaper and more reliably so that many of us can afford them. And the result is assembly line decline.
3: So this era we're in is, is very much post um, the industrial revolution. We are no longer relying on humans to the same degree to play those roles in assembly lines. There are still many, many workers on assembly lines around the world, but increasingly, the less human parts of those jobs are being automated. And what's left for us to do is either more uh, physically or psychologically complex, and that's why it has not yet been automated. The Industrial Revolution brought about huge changes in how we work and how we think about workers. And part of what we're trying to do in our book is bring awareness to the ways that those changes are so embedded in the corporate structure that we don't see them anymore, but they're no longer serving us well because our world of work is so, so very different. So for example, corporate trainings started on the factory floor large groups of people would be taught all at once how to use certain kinds of machinery and then sent out to do that work.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Gabriella Kellerman, the author of Tomorrow Mind, thriving at work with resilience, creativity, and connection now and in an uncertain future. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of the entire Tech Nation program and standalone biotech segments are available through your favorite podcaster. Click through on technation.com or biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, we learn how AI is used in drug discovery and how one company has used it to develop drugs for agitation in bipolar one and two and schizophrenia, as well as a rare form of prostate cancer. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Dr. Gabriella Kellerman. Her book is Tomorrow Mind, Thriving at Work with Resilience, Creativity, and Connection, Now and in an Uncertain Future.
3: Corporate trainings started on the factory floor large groups of people would be taught all at once how to use certain kinds of machinery and then sent out to do that work. And we still today see that most training of employees, it's uh, one time, large groups, it's a one size fits all approach. It's not designed around what we actually understand about how we learn. It's also not optimized for a world of work where the requirements of the job are changing every day. So the speed of changes is happening so quickly and the complexity is happening so quickly and the individual needs around that are not going to be addressed through, you know, a one-time mass training.
0: Now, the flip of this is, well, let's be innovative. Let's be creative, both within really innovative companies like biotech or tech, Uh, but even in a manufacturing company, you know, it calls for creativity to improve processes, not just to make them faster, but to engage people so they feel like they matter. Um, and so I'm always shocked when people say to me, you know, I'm just not creative. I'm just not creative. I don't know. I, don't, I never know what to say to them. And I, I like very much your analysis that there are four types of creativity meaning you may be very good at one of these and not so good at the next one over. So let's go there.
3: Great. Yeah, we we believe that. We are all creatives. We all have native creative abilities. Some of us have greater self-awareness and self-efficacy around that than others, but it's there for all of us and we're embodying and living with that creativity every day. One of the ways to help gain awareness of your own creative capabilities is to look at this typology we've developed and see which of the types resonates most with you. So of the four types, the first is integration, which is seeing that two things that seemed really different might actually be the same or more usefully compared for the purposes of innovation. The second is the opposite, splitting. So taking one thing that uh, is treated as a unitary whole and breaking it into parts, again, for purposes of of innovation. Uh, It could be a single product that's split into multiple product lines. The assembly line itself is a great example of a splitting-based innovation. The third is figure-ground reversal which is where we see that what really matters for this problem we're trying to solve is what's in the background rather than what we're focused on in the foreground. And then the last one is distal thinking, and this is where the individuals in question are imagining a reality very, very different from the here and now. So different that it's hard for the rest of us to kind of wrap our heads around what they're imagining. And the challenge from there is how do you bridge from here to that distal future in a way that's going to be commercially viable?
0: And so many times I think we only label this distal thinking as creative and not the rest of it.
3: Absolutely. And, and it's really important and it's probably the rarest of the four, but it doesn't account for the majority of corporate innovation that happens. There's so much, especially through integration and splitting that we're always doing as a workforce, especially those on the front lines. We need to recognize it more. We need to celebrate it more. We need to help people develop a greater self-awareness of it.
0: Now, I know you talked about this in terms of teams and leading teams and building teams, uh, but I want to talk about it uh, in a in a greater sense, in a specific sense, as we can relate as individuals uh, in the workplace or just in, in whatever we're doing. Um, and that's having and creating psychological safety. What
3: does that mean? Yeah. So psychological safety is a really important construct. Um, Amy Edmondson's work on this is probably best known. And it's all about how do we create a space at work where we don't feel that we will be punished for taking risks. Uh, A huge part of what it takes to be successful today, given the volatility around us, given the fast pace of change and disruption, we need to be more open to risks than we would have been, certainly in you know that the uh, more industrial era where we're sort of workers along the line, following a set course of action. Now, lots of organizations deal with risk and model ways of handling employees who take risks that can either be encouraging of risk taking behavior or very discouraging. How do our leaders respond when we take risks? That teaches us a tremendous amount about whether we feel safe doing so. So are we punished for putting forth disruptive ideas? Um, When individuals take risks, let's say they follow all the protocols on the right way to do that, but ultimately the project fails, are they punished for that, right? So are we taking accountability for the outcome or the process? Process Process-based accountability is going to be much more effective for us um, in instilling the behaviors that we want around risk in particular, It's also, it can come down to, you know, small moments and micro interactions. So one example might be getting a, um, a draft of some kind of work from a design team. And maybe there's some great ideas that have been put forward. Maybe it's actually overall too ambitious. And the person receiving that proposal could have a knee-jerk reaction of, there's no way we could accomplish this, How, what am I supposed to do with this, right? And to then feed that reaction back to the team is going to teach the team to think smaller, not to put forward big ideas, to be very conservative in what they're advancing to whoever's commissioning the work or to their colleagues, You can get to the same outcome of giving them the feedback that it's a little too ambitious in a much more productive way by talking first and foremost about what's in the proposal that is really effective, that's really interesting, that reflects new and important ways of thinking about things, and ending with the bottom line of here's the timeline, here's what we have to get done in that timeline, help me understand from this proposal what should we prioritize so we can meet that mark, right? So be very clear about the outcome you need to get to, but don't squash the entrepreneurial and innovative spirit in the process of giving that feedback.
0: And if there's a whole lot of negative feedback, I sure don't feel psychologically safe.
3: Right. There needs to be a, a great balance of positive and constructive feedback. And the constructive feedback is going to work best when it's delivered in the context of a trusting relationship, which takes us back to rapid rapport. Well,
0: believe it or not, there's a lot more in this book. <laughs> we talked about <laughs> a lot. Uh, but Dr. Kellerman, I do want to thank you so much for joining me. I hope you come back and see us again.
3: Thank you so much for the
0: conversation. My guest today is Dr. Gabriella Kellerman, co-written with Martin Seligman. Their book is Tomorrow Mind Thriving at Work with Resilience Creativity and Connection Now and in an Uncertain Future It's published by Atria Books an imprint of Simon and Schuster for Tech Nation I'm Moira Gunn. We hear the term AI all the time but what is it actually doing Today we learn how AI was used by one company to discover a drug now approved by the FDA. The company's AI has already gone on to discover other drugs as well. Dr. Vimal Mehta is the CEO of BioXL Therapeutics. Well, Dr. Mehta, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy to be here.
0: Now, this is a very interesting interview for me because it's not just about the drug candidates, the treatments you're working on. But it's also about a a different and advanced approach or a new approach to drug discovery, how you come to identify what would make a good drug candidate. The scientist is looking to create this intervention in the body, is looking to figuring out how to deliver it. and uh, And in doing so, they... They read everything they can in the literature, and along the way, they form experiments and continue to work on what might be possible, and you know, as they learn, they evolve that. So when we look at this approach, um, the first limiting factor is the scientist's knowledge based on reading everything in the literature. Why is this a limiting factor?
4: uh there are 50 million publications and there is a overload of information it's very difficult for a scientist to digest all the information that's where we applied artificial intelligence and machine learning approaches to make the information digestible for the scientists because reading one publication at a time will not get you uh, where you need to be assimilate all the information so machine come in they can read 50 million publication and they never get tired, and scientists will get tired. So ultimately, machines can really help us find insights which are not possible by just reading one publication.
0: Well, there's also an old adage in networking that says uh, it's, it's not just who you know, it's who who you know knows. And a scientist reading a publication takes that information and just adds it on to himself but there's a, there's a deeper aspect to what artificial intelligence can learn.
4: Artificial intelligence in an unbiased ma- uh, manner creates a knowledge graph or, a, as you said, network of information, which no scientist can do. So it can bring all the information that may exist in one part of the world or the other part of the world and bring it together and create some unique insights, which are network maps. So you can look at first degree connection, which a scientist can identify by reading a book. But second, third degree connections are very difficult to assimilate because information is so complex. So that's where the artificial intelligence platform machine learning technique helps us sort out and bring the efficiency that we need to enhance our drug discovery and development process.
0: So it's not just who you know. It's who, who you know knows and who they know and it knows. <laughs> and so it's a much deeper understanding than just the paper at hand or what they're looking for at hand. So uh, that, that kind of brings together, it's like, ooh, it, it, it enables you to know far more. Now, you're not just looking for the information. Uh, you are also looking for those same capabilities among already approved drugs. Why is that?
4: The reason we are trying to take advantage of the existing knowledge because there is a is hundreds of years of knowledge available about the disease. There are so many molecules that either make it to the market and never their full biology has been understood or it has been exploited or leveraged. And there are molecules which fail after phase two and they get stuck in phase two and phase three. So we go with the unbiased approach. We try to see... That, what is the underlying disease drivers? Do we understand them? What are the ca- causal drivers for the disease? If we understand, then we try to relate that to the drugs and their underlying biology and the mechanism, what exists, and then we'll try to correlate and see can we find a novel way of treating that uh, patient population? And uh, that's exactly the underlying foundation for our drug candidates at Bioxel Therapeutics.
0: Well, this was certainly the example of your first drug, Igalmi, and let me spell it for, for listeners. It's I-G-A-L-M-I, Igalmi, which was approved last spring. And it's a drug to treat agitation associated with schizophrenia and bipolar 1 and 2. This was a drug that had been approved originally for a different medical condition. What was it originally approved for?
4: It was originally approved as a sedative and a sedative given in a surgical unit.
0: Now, obviously, if you're trying to settle down agitation in someone, you say, well, let's just pull the IV out. That's not going to happen. You had to develop a new delivery method. What did you do?
4: So we converted this drug into a sublingual thin film because you want some sort of a treatment that is patient-centric and friendly for the patient. They don't feel threatened. If you go at a patient with a needle, they can feel threatened and they can hurt you also if you're trying to go uh, 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 to them with a needle. So that was fundamental reason that we converted this drug into a sublingual thin film is green in color, it's a minty in taste, you put it under the tongue, it has a mucoadhesive and it starts onset of action immediately. That was the important factor for the doctor that once you give the drug, you have a rapid onset of action because you want to calm the patient uh, as soon as possible. We are doing micro dosing uh, because that's what we realize. that's what is needed to calm the patient. So, um, Film, we believe, was the ideal uh, uh, treatment delivery option for these patients. And we are seeing that in the real market since we have launched Egalmi in the marketplace.
0: And if you took a pill, if you got the person to take a pill, they're pretty agitated at this point, it would take a long time to get into their system.
4: Uh, It will, because it will go through the stomach. And uh, our drug that we are using on Egalmi, it has some sort of a metabolism so it won't get to the blood level to, we need within a short amount of time. So that's part of the re- reason we did the sublingual delivery, so that drug can reach to the blood levels and it can start treating the patient. There's another problem to that. If you give pill, sometimes these patients cheek it, they and then when the doctor leaves, they spit it out. So with the film, with the mucoadhesive, they can do that.
0: A drug candidate that was original right from the lab bench, never previously used, would take 12 to 15 years to become approved. This was already approved. What territory did you not have to revisit because it was already approved?
4: Uh, First is that we knew so much about the drug, the fundamental properties of the drug, because it has been in humans for over 20 years. In 10 million patients, there are 10,000 publications already. So that gives us a very good base. Uh, the biggest advantage was that we had a very good understanding of the safety for this drug because it has been used in the humans. So that's uh, the that key characteristic that you look into the drug, like what is the pharmacokinetics, what is the pharmacodynamics, what is the safety, that's already established. We needed to figure out what those and what is the delivery mechanism and what smart trial we need to design to prove it. And that's exactly what we did. That's part of the reason we were able to go from our IND all the way to the approval within a 3.5 year rather than taking the uh, 12 to 15 year cycle. And there has been no innovation in this area, so it's a highly innovative drug from those perspectives.
0: So, for those of you listening who are outside the drug development field, IND is investigational new drug. That means you tell the FDA, "This is what we want to do." So that's day one in a in a drug like this. Uh, uh, and from there to it was actually approved was just three and a half years instead of the 12 to 15, and you had a lot more confidence because so much more was done. Uh,
4: Certainly. Um, It gives us a high level of confidence, a de-risk opportunity uh, for our stakeholders because we have a high level degree of confidence that we can bring it um, in the clinic and we can, if clinical data is good, we can bring it to the regulators to get approved. So those were the fundamental reasons for forming BioXel Therapeutics and initiating this agitation program, massive program where there are 140 million episodes. And it's a huge, huge societal problem. So we are very pleased with the outcome we had with Egalmi. And as you and I speak today, it's already helping the patient.
0: You said 140 million episodes. Do you mean 140 million episodes per year? That's right. And what was the what's the current treatment for that before Aigalmi showed up?
4: So let me just divide that. So agitation happens because of schizophrenia, bipolar one and two, and agitation happens in dementia patient or Alzheimer's patient. So there are about forty million episodes that happen for schizophrenia, bipolar one or two patient, and there are about hundred million episodes that happen for Alzheimer's and dementia patient. So currently, there is no approved therapy for Alzheimer's-related agitation. They give them antipsychotic, They give them benzodiazepines. But whatever treatment options are more tranquilizing and they are black box warning. So they have not been. there is no approved therapy as of today. In bipolar and schizophrenia uh, arena, there are a few approved therapies, but they don't work that well. And some of them are IM injections, and they have like a no long effect in patient sedating the patient or tranquilizing the patient. So what we have come with is a very ideal option to treat a patient agitation and involve the patient in the care and making a treatment choice. So physician can tell them, I have this am injection or I have this innocuous film to treat your agitation. What do you want to take? And some of these patients had this experience that they come to the emergency room multiple times so they know they did not like the drugs or choices they were on before because they were tranquilized for a long time. So patients really know what the side effects were. So with a new drug like Igolmi, they have a new treatment option. And uh, same for the healthcare providers and the physicians.
0: Now, I know you're also studying uh, bringing Igolmi at home, right now, you would have to go, you'd have to be in a facility of some sort or go to the ER to get this. Um, how do you study it at home?
4: We just initiated that program last year, our pivotal phase three program. We call it as a Serenity 3. And we, it has two parts to it. One part is efficacy. We are testing the efficacy in a medical supervised setting like we did before, like where we got approval of the economy. Just we are using a lower dose. So in our EGALMI, we got 120 microgram and 180 microgram, two doses approved across the spectrum, mild, moderate, and severe agitation. And now we are using half the dose, 60, and showing the efficacy. Once we demonstrate efficacy under the same condition as our previous trial, then second part of safety will be done at home. And it's no different than any other drug that is being developed they test the safety at home so we will be using the same where patient will be reporting how he feels does he feel any safety or uh, issues or his informant will be providing that information so it's no different than the regular drug development
0: and you're also studying alzheimers as well right
4: that's right that's that's a very very large opportunity and very high unmet medical need so our uh, like you know parents or grandparents They end up in the assisted living facilities or nursing homes, not because of the Alzheimer's or dementia. They end up there because agitation cannot be controlled by their family member. They really don't know how to manage that. Because whenever agitation happens, they send them to the emergency room. So it's a huge unmet medical need. There's no approved therapy. And we have a breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA using our phase two data. So we are in a good place and now we are running pivotal trials. We call them Tranquility 2 and 3 to show that we can uh, help these patients and then if data is positive, be able to get approval from the FDA. And there are about 100 million episodes related to just Alzheimer's related agitation.
0: Now, since AI engines will search for whatever you're asking for, I know you're also working in immuno-oncology. Uh, Keytruda, of course, is well known as a as leading immuno-oncology drug, uh, and it works for many cancers, but it doesn't work for all cancers. Here's where you're operating, right?
4: That's right. So we are working on tumors that are hard to treat. What I mean by that hard to treat tumors is these tumors, by definition, are also called as cold tumors, where immunotherapy doesn't work. If you change the microenvironment inside the tumor and make them hot, there is a high likelihood that Ketruda will provide better benefit to the patient. So that's exactly what we are doing with our lead product that was again identified using our AI platforms. We are combining with Ketruda. We are presenting a data next week at ESCOGU, full 28 patient data to show. How well uh, it can help the patient. So that data will be presented by our principal investigator. And currently, cedida responses are really, really low, like under five percent in these rare forms of the prostate cancer. So if you can enhance the response rate into the mid twenties, like you know, that's a big win uh, for uh, these patients. Because uh, and also if you can stabilize the disease and you can have a durable response. Rate.
0: And is your drug one that was previously approved as well?
4: This drug had a different story. So this drug has gone to the phase three trial in uh, um, other tumor types, and it has done multiple phase two trials. It was a biotech company. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars, but it was stuck. Using AI, we identified that this drug which was tried before the immunotherapy revolution in early 2000, where everything combination was a chemotherapy, chemotherapy and the drug. This drug didn't work. With the new information about the immunotherapy and our AI platform being able to identify that, that it's an innate immunity activator, and this could be a relevant candidate to combine. So we have published the mechanism. It's a completely novel mechanism. For this drug, we have established the safety with Ketruda and now uh, efficacy with Ketruda. So this will give us a good path to develop how to bring this drug to the marketplace.
0: It occurs to me that you just don't walk up to your AI engine and say, hey, we need another drug. (laughs) You've got to have data and you've got to be able to ask the question you know, or the questions to get it down to those things that are usable, actions that are usable. Tell us about that.
4: Uh, You're absolutely right. There's no magical solution. And in terms of the question, we decide that we want to work in this uh, medical condition. Our experts, they design questions that can be as long as 500 to 5,000 word queries, and we feed in the machine. Then machine reads whatever information is available and creates what we call as a network map or a knowledge graph. These are dynamic. It's not a database. These are dynamic network maps or a knowledge graph, which we can update as new information will come. And we use that to see what are the key insights we can drive using the machine learning. Like how can we figure out something that's not easily accessible to the human brain because there is so much information. So it's a quite a process and we have built this over a now uh, 15 years. The parent company of Bioxel Therapeutics, Bioxel Corporation, started as a big data company, developed the algori- algorithm, did this work for the pharmaceutical company for over uh, like you know, 200 companies and then applied this to create Bioxel Therapeutics Pipeline, which are our current drugs. So we are a very patient-centric organization. We like to make societal impacts, and that's exactly what we like to do as a team at Bioxel Therapeutics.
0: Well. With this uh, telling of your journey, your motto for the company could be, one thing leads to another, (laughs) and it certainly does. Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you'll come back and see us again.
4: Uh, Certainly. Thank you very much for hosting us. I appreciate that.
0: Dr. Vimal Mehta is the CEO of BioXL Therapeutics. More information is available at bioexcel.com. That's bio, the letter X, and C E L. Bioexcel.com. For Technician, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctreeb zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Landcourt